Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. I'm talking about the Battle of the Bulge Day, Hitler's, well, one of his last throws, a major operation launched to try and stave off the inevitability of defeat in Europe. I've made several programs about the Battle of Belgium over the years and several documentaries, many of which are available on History at TV. Everyone go and check it out. And I'm always very struck by one piece of testimony that was left behind by a German during the Battle of the Bulge. It was a Belgian schoolteacher got back to his smashed classroom to find a message written on the blackboard. May the world never again live through such a Christmas night. Nothing is more horrible than meeting one's fate, far from mother, wife and children. Is it worthy of man's destiny to bereave a mother of her son, a wife of her husband, or children of their father? Life was bequeathed us in order that we might love and be considerate to one another. From the ruins out of blood and death shall come forth a brotherly world. It was signed simply, a German officer. The campaign was fought in the depths of winter. Snow was on the ground. It was, well, like so many other Second World War battles, a hideous experience for everyone caught up in it. And now a new history has been written from the German point of view, trying to make sense of Hitler's decisions and those of his generals in those dark days of 1944 and 1945. It's written by Anthony Tucker-Jones. He's been on the podcast before. He was a British intelligence officer. He's now a defence writer and military historian. He's written Hitler's Winter. And I want to catch up with him and hear about his insights into the bulge. Why on earth did Hitler launch it in the first place? And did it have any chance of success? Enjoy. Anthony, thanks very much for coming on the pod. Thank you very much for having me on uh, History Hits again. Coming into the winter of 1944, what are Hitler's options at this point? The rational option, of course, is to sue for peace, saving a million's lives, infrastructure, people being brutalised, communist conquest of great chunks of Eastern Europe. But what are his options, does he think? That was one of the things that actually informed me when I was writing the book, you know, was what convinced Hitler that launching the Ardennes offensive was a good idea. So essentially, he really had, well, I guess, three options, one of which you've outlined, which was surrender. But of course, that was going to have to be unconditional surrender, which the Nazis didn't want to do. Otherwise, he could launch a counteroffensive somewhere, 
or conduct a defensive operation. And by late 44, through the miracle of uh, Albert Speer's weapons factories, they'd managed to re-equip two panzer armies. So Hitler had this option to attack somewhere. And essentially on the table, we had two options, the big solution, the little solution. And the little solution was to launch a counter-attack around the German city of Achin and try and trap some American divisions there or launch this much more ambitious operation to get to Antwerp and obviously deny the Allies the port. Whereas, in fact, most of his generals preferred the defensive option, which was to move those panzer armies behind the Rhine and the Vistula or the Oder from where they could launch counterattacks once the Allies had got over those major rivers. And in light of the situation that Germany was in, that really probably in hindsight was the best option. You talk about two options in the West there, but then you mentioned the Vistula and Oda in the East. Why was Hitler focused on the West with this big offensive? Why not try and do something to stem the tide of the Red Army sweeping across from the East? Because General Heinz Guderian, who was the uh, chief of staff for the German army, desperately wanted to concentrate all their forces and their resources on the East because the Eastern Front effectively was crumbling at a much faster rate than it was on the Western Front but was overridden by Hitler. But actually, the whole point of the Ardennes offensive was to give the Allies a bloody nose, the British, Americans, French, Canadians, by taking Antwerp. And then his plan was then to turn back to the east, so redeploy those panzer armies from the Western Front onto the Eastern Front and do a similar exercise there. Little echo of the Schieffen plan here. Indeed, yes, very much. The idea was that they would move on interior lines of communication and would move their troops quickly. And in fact, ironically, that is exactly what they did do. So after the Battle of the Bulge came to an end, 6th Panzer Army was then sent to Hungary, of all places, because Hitler wanted to keep hold of the Hungarian oil fields and launched counter-offensive there, something called Operation Spring Awakening, which very few people are aware of, actually. I mean, the general consensus or perception is that the Ardennes Offensive was Germany's last major offensive of the war, whereas in fact it wasn't. They launched this major, major operation in Hungary after the Ardennes attack. So the idea is to strike towards Antwerp. In the best case scenario for the Germans, they would what take the port and stop supplies flowing in to keep the Western Allies moving and eventually crossing the Rhine. Essentially, that's it. I mean, Hitler saw the attackers doing two things. First was obviously to physically take Antwerp and deny it to the Allies. The port had only been opened up fairly recently towards the end of the year because it took the Allies so long to clear German defences along the Shell Estuary. So they've been using this thing called the Red Ball Express across Europe to effectively truck supplies from the French Channel ports to their armies on the Western Front. And all that was taking a long time. So they've been desperate to get Antwerp open. So Hitler knew how fundamental it was that he shut that port to them again, deny it. His sensible plan, of course, was if he could have cut his way to the port was to destroy everything. And in fact, he tried that with a separate operation. But as well as the sort of military ground effort, his other hope was, and something he clung to throughout the closing months of the war, was that the Allies would fall out amongst themselves. British and American relations had not always run smoothly. There was all the controversy over the conduct of the Normandy campaign. Obviously, Britain, America, France and Canada were strange bedded fellows for the Soviet Union as Certainly Churchill obviously had been so anti-communist for so many years. So his hope was that he could broker, I think, a separate peace deal, that if he could give the Western allies a bloody nose, it would give pause for thought 
and maybe there would be some sort of truce or maybe the whole condition of unconditional surrender could be renegotiated. And if that was the case, obviously the German armed forces, the Wehrmacht, could then turn east and fight the Red Army, which most of the German military saw as the greater threat, quite understandably, because of the absolutely enormous territorial gains they'd made during the summer of 1944. So he's clinging at a very slender thread there, the hope that everyone's going to fall out with each other. Militarily, the failed Allied operation at Arnhem, Operation Market Garden, had that given the Germans any grounds for optimism about tactically and operationally how they might be able to take on the Allies in the West? I think a little bit. I mean, obviously, the Allied defeat at Arnhem was a bit of a boost for German morale. But for the Germans, there was so much going on on the Western Front. That was just one of many battles. I think it's really the West, and particularly us, the British, that have elevated Arnhem into this sort of almost mythic battle. Whereas for the Germans at the time, it was a bit of a near-run thing. We tried to break through, and they'd stopped it. But they had so much more going on elsewhere, in the south of France, in the centre. So... That was just one of many problems that they were facing at that time. I think what actually gave Hitler encouragement to do it, as I say, was what they dubbed the miracle in the West. So after the Feliz pocket, you know, the German armed forces had collapsed in Normandy, the Allies had trapped all these troops, all this equipment, but actually around 100,000 or so German panzer troopers had escaped, and they'd escaped without their tanks. But through the miracle of German industry, they managed to re-equip them. So Hitler conducted this sort of holding action throughout the rest of the summer in 1944, denied most of his commanders reinforcements while they rebuilt all his panzer divisions because all of them that were lost in Normandy were rebuilt. I mean, again, quite frankly, from a military point of view, it was a miracle. They rebuilt them. And then also Heinrich Himmler, who was in charge of the SS, built all these new infantry divisions. So they created these things called Volksgrenadier divisions or people's divisions. So they created all these slightly smaller than your standard army division, grenadier divisions. So they'd created all these new formations. So Hitler had these sort of two panzer armies, which he was obviously itching to make use of. But the real issue of what was the best use for them. And the other thing that encouraged him was his Wonder Weapons, the V-Weapon program. He was hoping that Certainly the V2 would take out Antwerp docks. So parallel to the Ardennes offensive, there was this rocket and flying bomb offensive. The Luftwaffe, although sort of holding its ground, treading water, had enough aircraft to launch a grand slam assault. So they had that as a possibility as well. And also Hitler had all these, again, more wonder weapons. So jet fighters and jet bombers coming on online. And the irony was that Hitler was his own worst enemy. So with the Messerschmitt 262, the jet fighter, it wasn't ready because Hitler had changed the parameters of what he wanted it to do. So originally it was to be a jet fighter and then it turned into a fighter bomber and all that slowed down design and production of the thing. But another irony was as a fighter bomber, it would have been exactly the thing that he needed to help blaze a path for his armies in the Ardennes, but there simply were not enough of them ready. Same with they had the thing called the Aredo, a jet bomber, dedicated jet bomber, which could outrun Allied aircraft the same as the fighter. But none of these aircraft were available in large enough numbers. But all these things sort of informed Hitler's decision to launch this attack against the better judgment of most of his generals. Well, let's talk about the opposition. The attack would largely fall on American units. How were they? It had been a tough old slog since D-Day. 
Yes, I mean, the American army had suffered quite considerable losses, breakout from Normandy. I mean, their infantry divisions had been, in many cases, decimated. So in the Ardennes area, there were a number of American divisions recuperating and being re-equipped over the winter because the Allies thought it was a quiet area. And also a number of green divisions come into the line, divisions that have been shipped over from America. And it was felt that the Ardennes area, because it was quiet, would be a good place to sort of work them up so they were ready for combat. And again, this was one of the reasons why Hitler chose the Ardennes. Obviously, he did it in 1914, it had worked. But also, he had a slightly poorer opinion of the Americans, completely unfounded, of course, but a poorer opinion of the American armies than the British and Canadian. And I think he thought if he caught that combination of slightly worn out divisions and green divisions, that they would fold. Uh, again, this was a, one of his gambles. He thought that they would fold very quickly, which, of course, in some instances they did do. Some units behaved quite badly and fled, but the bulk of American units actually took a leaf out of the German copybook, if you like, and created all these battle groups, so camp groups, which the Germans were very good at doing. And the Americans sort of cobbled together all these units, which, of course, delayed the Germans long enough for reinforcements to arrive. So this is another one of the things that kind of Hitler miscalculated as he underestimated the American army. Talk me through the launch of this attack. It came at a particular time of year as well. Yes, just before Christmas, 16th of December, Germans launched this massive barrage and away they go. The Allies had had some inkling of this build-up, but it did take them by surprise, actually quite shamefully. And a lot of the time, of course, the Allies had anticipated that the Germans would launch a counter-attack in the Achin area because that's where part of the Panzer Army had been gathering anyway. So it did catch them by surprise. But the key thing that really was against Germans was the weather. They sped forward. One of the things that fascinated me was that they had all these special forces, various paratroop and commando units, which were supposed to speed ahead of this great armoured stampede, if you like, conducted by the Germans. And none of these went terribly well. You've got Otto Scorseni and his commandos disguised as American GIs. And indeed, he had an entire armoured brigade supposedly disguised as Americans. But when the shout went out, he didn't get sufficient equipment or uniforms. So ultimately, it was the advanced commando units that were sent forward to reconnoitre bridges that were the most convincing as Americans. And to be fair, they did cause chaos quite a bit. And some of them captured actually claimed that they were being sent to kill Eisenhower in Paris, which, of course, really set alarm bells ringing and in many ways slowed down slightly Americans bringing forward reinforcements because they became obsessed with fifth columnists. So every road junction that had military police on, anyone moving on those roads was immediately stopped, questioned. And they had all these sort of passwords, which famously British General Brian Horrocks was stopped by the Americans. And of course, he had no idea who American celebrities were or sports stars, so really struggled to answer their questions. And on one occasion, I think it was an American brigadier, was actually arrested for some time because, again, he didn't know the password, so he was arrested. So it worked in a limited way. The parachute operation, complete and utter disaster from start to finish. It was organised in too much of a rush. There were insufficient men, insufficient planes. They were scattered all over the place. And in fact, once they'd gathered a small battle group, they ended up spending most of their time hiding because they simply were not strong enough to take on local American units. But all this, of course, helped sow chaos behind American lines. In some instances, the commandos did turn around road signs and all this sort of thing. So it was all quite dramatic, really. The main failure was it was just poorly planned. You're listening to Dan Snow's History Hit. We're talking about the Battle of the Bulge. More coming up. 
Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year, join us on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores and follow Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. How far did they get in the days following the start of the offensive? How far did they get? Certainly the commandos got to the River Moose. I mean, some of them actually observed some of the bridges, so they did get that far. The bulge, you know, they ended up this spear-shaped bulge just short of the river, but, of course, it tapered into a point by the river, which made it vulnerable. And for the Germans, of course, they struggled on the north and southern shoulders of the breakthrough. That ultimately was the failure. It involved three armies. It was supposed to involve four, but one of them wasn't really combat-ready, so couldn't move to help them. So the Germans found themselves fighting defensive operations on the northern and southern shoulders of the breakthrough, but also at the point. And of course, within a week or so, the weather broke, which then created problems for them getting supplies forward. 
And also the American defence of Bastogne severely derailed everything because Bastogne sits on that major road junction for the entire region. So it meant whoever controlled the town controlled the roads. And that really did derail things for the Germans. At their furthest point of advance, they got 40 or 50 miles. But then, so Bastogne, right on this southern flank, the Americans, made famous now by the Band of Brothers TV show, the Americans hold out at Bastogne. They were surrounded. It was an impressive, very obstinate operation there. Well, it was. Again, it was a race against time. The whole of the German Ardennes offensive from start to finish was a race against time. And, of course, the Americans picked the Germans to the post by getting into Bastogne before them. The American Airborne Division got there just before they did and created this defensive perimeter. And as I say, this then derailed the Germans because they became obsessed with trying to take it, which meant troops that should have been advancing forward were detached to try and overwhelm them. When I was researching the book, I mean, I ended up feeling quite sorry for the German 5th Parachute Division, which was on the southern flank of the town, because they ended up fighting a two-front action, because once Patton was cutting his way north to relieve it, they were facing northwards and southwards. I mean, the division ended up being decimated and was effectively trapped in the southern portion of that battlefield. But they couldn't move forward and they couldn't move backwards. And, of course, they were trying to hold that southern shoulder. But once the Americans had cut that corridor into the town, it made the rest of the Battle of the Bulge pointless, largely because, of course, the Germans didn't have the wherewithal to cut the corridor. That's why it's another appalling sort of example of the futility of these last months of the war. I mean, it was just these people fighting terrible tactical battles, costly, but for virtually no purpose whatsoever. There was no chance after the first what couple of days that the Germans were ever going to achieve anything like their aims. No, I mean, they simply wasted all those forces that they'd regenerated. From a military point of view, that's the tragedy for the Germans, is that they'd rebuilt these armies and created these two panzer armies. And ultimately, they would have been so much better if they'd been used to hold the Rhine and the Oder because they could have launched major armoured counterattacks whenever the Allies broke over either of those rivers. Instead, effectively, of course, with the Battle of the Bulge, is that they put themselves into this enormous noose, which was cut off, or at least severed in the middle. I mean, what I found quite remarkable was that there were sufficient forces then to be sent east to launch this operation in Hungary. The thing was that the Germans in the winter, and one of the reasons I called it Hitler's winter, because in that winter of 44, 45, there were effectively four separate operations. So you had the V-weapon offensive against Antwerp, which failed because the weapons were so inaccurate, they didn't really damage the docks greatly. You then had Operation Bodenplate or Baseplate, which was their aerial offensive, which didn't take place until the new year, so two weeks after the Battle of Bulge had started. So it was way too late. And tactically, they made the mistake of attacking the runways and facilities where they were much better shooting up the barracks and trying to kill ground crew and air crew because, of course, the Allies could replace equipment very quickly. And then the Germans also launched their offensive down in the Alsace, which was sort of supposed to have drawn off the pressure on the German bulge to the south, but ended up a completely unrelated battle. Again, Hitler got it into his head that if he drove a wedge between the French and the American armies, that might cause some sort of political rift and cause pause for thought again. But that failed as well. So you had these four operations in the winter that actually could have had an impact on the Allies. But the way that they were conducted, they didn't, largely because of the factor of timing and planning. And... Talk to me about the air assault as well, because the weather sort of clears up a bit after New Year's and the Luftwaffe take an absolute pasting as well. Is this the last time Luftwaffe was ever able to mount a proper effort? Pretty much, yes. I mean, 
by this part of the war, of course, the Luftwaffe's principal effort was defending the airspace over Germany and Germany's major cities, particularly Berlin. And amongst the Luftwaffe commanders, there was this big debate about what would be best to do with the last strength of aircraft that they had. Should it be used to support the ground offensive or should they do some sort of grand slam thing in the air? And Adolf Garland was really keen on doing this grand slam attack against American bombers. And he wanted to put a thousand aircraft into the air at one go to intercept American bombers on the grounds that if they shot down so many of them, again, it would cause a pause in the Allied strategic bomber offensive. But of course, Hitler wanted them to support the ground operation. But the irony was that Hitler needed the bad weather, which kept the Allies grounded, to cover his ground attack, which meant the Luftwaffe, of course, could only conduct limited sorties during the opening stages of the offensive, which meant on, I think it's the 1st of January when the air offensive took place, it was too late to have any impact on the ground fighting. And in fact, what the Germans did was to ensure that they had enough aircraft in the air is that they mobilised a lot of their experienced instructors, which was, of course, a complete disaster, because quite a few of those were lost during that air attack. And they were flying alongside very young green pilots as well. And again, a lot of those were lost. So although they managed to destroy in the region of 300 Allied aircraft, I mean, it was quite a major operation. The Allies could replace those quickly, whereas the Germans could not replace their losses in a similar manner. So let's finish the German ground offences off. They what, sort of reached their maximum extent of advance around sort of Christmas Day, Boxing Day, and then what happens to them after that? Well, Hitler, of course, was very, very reluctant to give up ground. It was anathema always to him to surrender ground, whereas common sense said that they should start withdrawing. And indeed, some of them did because they didn't have any other choice. Things like Kampfgruppe Piper, which is one of the battle groups that had spearheaded the attack, they pretty much lost all their equipment by that point, so had to withdraw. Most of the divisions had run out of fuel and ammunition anyway, so leaving them there was not a good thing. By Christmas time as well, the Allies were in a position to launch a major counterattack, both to the north and south of the bulge. So to have left them there for any length of time would have meant writing off those forces. As it was, the Allies were a bit more cautious, and what they did was they nipped it off in the middle so they didn't go for the mouth of the bulge. The British and Americans drove towards each other and nipped it off in a central point. But as I say, a lot of the forces were successfully withdrawn. What are the casualties at the end of it? Something like, in the end, about a million Allied troops are involved in this operation. But give me the casualties and the involvement of both sides. Oh, off the top of my head, you're asking now. I think Germans, something like 30,000 dead and maybe about 70,000 wounded. But I'm going from memory without checking. But yes, they were quite considerable. I mean, again, they were troops that the Germans could ill afford. That was the problem. They were really scraping the bottom of the manpower barrel by that stage. And then the Allied advance resumed in early spring, probably thrust into the heart of Germany, and the war was over, what, five months later in Europe? Yes, I mean, there were still obviously heated and prolonged battles in the Rhineland. Operation Plunder took place in March 45, and although the German forces were spent by that stage, there was still a lot of fighting going on, sufficient for, of course, for us to be delayed to reach Berlin. Obviously, the Red Army got there before us, and also there was sort of a, a mutual agreement. But it did look like at one point that the Americans can actually get there because of the state of German armies, particularly um, to the south of Berlin. But what it meant was, because the Battle of the Bulge, they'd lost in the West any offensive power, and crucially, of course, Army Group B became trapped in the Ruhr pockets and in, in Germany's industrial heartland, Field Marshal Model and around 300,000 troops were trapped in this enormous pocket. 
and surrendered. I mean, they were going nowhere. They couldn't be resupplied. They're out of ammunition, out of food. So this enormous pocket of German troops were forced to surrender in the West. Do we know what impact this defeat had on Hitler himself, this operation on which he'd been pinning so many of his hopes? Surprisingly, he seemed to write it off fairly quickly. He did his normal trick of blaming his generals. He said they wouldn't listen to his advice and it was all their fault. And if they'd done what he'd said in the first place, it would have succeeded. So he sort of, like an ostrich, stuck his head in the sand and refused to acknowledge what had happened, which was very, very strange. And also, I think probably he was pinning his hopes on the counteroffensive in Hungary, maybe tilting the balance on the Eastern Front. So he might get a win out of the two operations, which, of course, he didn't. But I think because things were so fast moving, he didn't really have time to reflect what was happening. And, of course, the Russians were about to launch their Vistaroda offensive, which started, what, mid-January in '45. So straight after Christmas, pretty much, the Germans were having to think, you know, what are we going to do next? Which is the bigger threat? Is it on the Eastern Front, the Western Front? So they didn't really have time to reflect on what had happened. It was only until after the war when obviously all the German generals were captured and slowly debriefed about their operations that they all turned around and went, well, we never agreed with it in the first place. It was all Hitler's doing. And again, that's one of the things that informed me in writing the book because I thought, well, they would say that with a benefit of hindsight, wouldn't they? They're going to try and, and save their military reputations. But actually, having researched the book, they did say that from the start. There was no change of heart. People like Sepp Dietrich, who commanded 6th Panzer Army, didn't want the job because he knew he was being overpromoted. I mean, he was a reasonably successful corps commander, but wasn't really an army commander because going from a regiment to a division, to a corps, to an army, to an army group, they're all very different skill sets. Some people manage the transition successfully and some don't. And I think Sepp Dietrich knew that he was being overpromoted. But likewise, when he looked at the ground that they were going to attack across, he just knew that they weren't going anywhere. And as we discussed earlier, one of Hitler's, I think, reasons that convinced him that the Ardennes offensive would work was because, of course, they'd successfully done it in 1940. But they did it in 1940 in the spring. The weather was good when the Allies weren't expecting it. The French and Belgians were in disarray. They managed to cut their way down to Sedan very quickly. But, of course, Hitler thought he could replicate that, whereas his generals, who, of course, with the men on the ground, knew actually it wasn't going to work, that it just simply was a non-starter from the beginning. But because he was insistent, they had to do it. And also, I think certainly the German army sort of fell into line because because Hitler was increasingly relying on the SS because of the bomb plot to kill him in the summer of '44. He no longer trusted the army, so he increasingly lent on the SS. He kept thinking that they would somehow achieve a decisive victory. And let's face it, they'd fought toughly in Normandy and they'd saved German armed forces on numerous occasions on the Eastern Front. So I think he'd convinced himself that they could do it again. But the defeat in Hungary for him was the last straw of the SS. Even the SS he'd lost faith in by what would be March 45. He famously ordered them to take off their SS cuffs because he wanted them all shamed for their poor performance. So it wasn't their fault. But going back to the original part of your question, he didn't really have time to reflect on what had happened in the Ardennes. And I don't think he wanted to, quite frankly. He knew what he'd done. He'd thrown away a major opportunity through it being a rush job and poorly planned. And again, not heeding the advice of his generals. Yeah, not a great one for introspection, Adolf Hitler. Anthony, thank you very much for coming on this podcast. Tell everyone what your book is called. My book is called Hitler's Winter, The German Battle of the Bulge. It's told 
purely from the German perspective. Because the challenge for me, obviously, was to try and keep mention of the Allies to a minimum because I wanted to put the readers firmly at the German eye view level. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. If you like, from grassroots up, I mean, it doesn't just cover the generals, it covers your average soldier. Because, of course, while the generals are saying this is a bad thing, lots of German soldiers, of course, were amazed when they saw all these brand new units, brand new tanks, all the Volksgrenadier divisions, that German morale when they launched that attack was very, very high. And why wouldn't it be? Because their average German soldier on the ground, when he looked around him, he just went, this is incredible. It looks like the old days. Anthony, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you, Ten. A pleasure as always. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.